welcome uh, now everyone who is not only in this room right now, uh, but also everyone who is joining us online, uh, live streaming with us as we go uh, through our time together uh, as God's people uh, for the Lord, and also everyone who's going to be watching later on today and then later on throughout the week. We're so glad uh, that all of you are here, and we are excited, aren't we, to gather here in our worship space, our worship center. We're glad to be able to gather outside on our courtyard. In a little while, we're going to experience worship outdoors once again and also online because we are Southwinds together. And we're going to continue to worship our Lord and our Savior. And we're also excited that we are providing a kid space indoors at both of our services. And I mentioned that so you kind of help get the word out uh, to people. Our, our students are continuing to meet during the middle of the week on Wednesdays over in the refinery. And uh, I just want to continue to say thank you to all of you for all of your prayers throughout this time and all of your support. Also, I want to say thank you for your continued flexibility. I am thanking you in advance. I am, I am uh, thanking you and having faith in advance that you will be flexible uh, in the days that are ahead as we continue to adapt our plans uh, to meet the challenges that we're going to run into still ahead of us uh, and also to be able to meet the needs of as many people as we possibly can uh, throughout this season. Well, if you don't have your Bibles out and open, go ahead and do that now. Get them to the book of Philippians. We are again in the second chapter this week. We're going to be studying verses 12 through 18. And today we are talking about working out. And I know that got some of you really excited and it got some of you very discouraged. But you're both wrong because it's not what you think. We are going to explore a concept today that many uh, Christians misunderstand. And it's actually a truth that's right at the beating heart of what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ. You, you cannot be filled with joy if you don't get this and put this into practice. It's that important. So with that in our minds, I want us to read our text for today, beginning in verse 12. This is what the Apostle Paul writes, and this is the Word of God. Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in, your ab in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, if you, if you didn't know it before, you know it now. The, the working out we're, we're talking about has nothing to do with gyms or running or lifting weights or Pilates or anything else. I want to give you Paul's key teaching in these verses, and it's something you can fill out in your message notes that are available on our app. And it's simply this, a joyful life requires us to work out what God has worked in. A joyful life requires us to work out what God has worked in. 
Now, some of you will uh, be aware of this. Maybe this is new to you. Maybe you've never read this passage before. But a lot of people struggle to understand here what Paul is saying. And, and a lot of people take Paul's words here into places Paul never goes. So I want to unpack them. And we're going to put verses 12 and 13 on the screen again so that you can uh, kind of see what we're looking at. Paul says the first word, notice, therefore. And this tells us, as it always does, that what is about to be said has everything to do with what has just been said. What Paul is about to say is going to refer back to what Paul has just said in verses 1 through 11. And if you remember from last week in those verses, Paul tells us to humble ourselves by putting other people first. He tells us that joy doesn't come from getting our needs met, but from meeting the needs of other people. And here's the reason we know this. We know this is true because Jesus is the happiest person who ever lived. You ever thought about that? Jesus is the happiest person who ever lived. And his entire life was about humbling himself, about putting others first. Amen? And you see, that's Paul's point. Do what Jesus did. See, that's why we call ourselves Christians, right? Because we follow Jesus, we live like Jesus, and Jesus did this, so Paul says we should do this, even though, as we saw last week, even though he was God, he gave up his rights in love to save us. Even though Jesus was God, he humbled himself, even to death on a cross. But then God, Paul says, exalted him so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So what's happening here actually in that word therefore, Paul is reminding us of the gospel. He's reminding us what what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then with that in mind, he's gonna go on to show us how that should play out in our practical everyday lives. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And what does that mean? What is Paul saying when he writes, work out your salvation? See, to understand what Paul is saying, you need to know what Paul is not saying. And I want to put it this way. Working out your salvation has nothing to do with working for your salvation. Working for your salvation is something that is completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Working for your salvation is about you having to earn it, about you somehow deserving it. And do you understand this is actually the default mode of humanity? This is what pretty much every other religion in the world teaches in one way or another. I'll give you a couple of examples just to make it clear. You know as well as I do, as we live here in our communities, we're we're seeing more and more the presence of Islam all around us. Islam teaches that you have to earn, you have to work your way to paradise. One of Islam's five core beliefs is that one day Allah will judge all people and on that day each person's deeds are, are going to be weighed in the balance and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds then you're going to be rewarded with paradise. But if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you're going to be sent to hell. 
And this means you cannot know until that final day of judgment whether or not Allah will accept you. And, and this is one of the reasons why Muslims take the, the five pillars of their faith or the five practices so very seriously because that's how you can tip the scale the right way. And so devout Muslims practice things like saying 17 cycles of, of prayer each day at dawn and noon and mid-afternoon and dusk and then two hours after sunset. It's why they must wash themselves a certain way before they pray. It's why they must pray facing Mecca. It's why they have to engage in an annual fast. It's why they have to give a certain amount of their income. It's why in remembrance of Muhammad receiving the Quran uh, during the month of Ramadan, Muslims must fast all month during the daylight hours. And during that fast, they, they cannot eat or drink or smoke or engage in sexual relations. It's why during their lifetime, every devout Muslim must make the pilgrimage to Mecca at least once. And while there, it's, while they are, it's why they are supposed to perform certain rituals, including mass and sacrifice. You see, all of this is because they have to. It's because it's their only hope of earning their way, making their way into paradise. It's their only hope of doing enough to please Allah. Now, I won't go into the, the amount of details, but I can say in summation that Hindus have uh, a very similar concept of earning their way to, sal- to, to uh, uh, what is good and what is eternal, even though they, they see it in a very different way. They believe whatever, wherever you end up, it depends on uh, what you do, on your works. I'll give you one more example of another group that's wired up this way. It's actually a group that claims to be Christian, but it's actually not Jehovah Witnesses. And Jehovah Witnesses teach that when it comes to salvation, only 144,000 people go to heaven. Everyone else remains on earth. And those very special 144,000, they're going to rule with Christ in heaven. And probably if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you really want to know, how do you get into the 144,000, right? Well, you have to work for it. And the the reality is you don't know whether you make it or not until you die and you stand before God, at which point, of course, it's, it's too late to do anything about it. And so you have to work as hard as you can now. You have to hope for the best. And it is work. If you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, you know that they have to work like a certain number of hours a week knocking on doors. And they have to sell a certain number of magazines and books. And they have to attend a certain number of meetings a week at the Kingdom Hall. And it goes on and on. And it's all in hopes that after you die, you make the cut. And on top of that, they have to fill out reports about the work that they do each week. And all those reports are sent and the information from those reports is kept in headquarters, which is in Brooklyn. And along the way, if you don't work hard enough, you don't stay in line, if you step out of line, well, local leaders can like bring you up on kind of a trial and they can take any chances you might have a way of you know, making it to the, to the A-list. Now, here's what I wanna be clear on. I hope that no one here is hearing me mocking any group that practices religion like this, because I'm not. I do not feel scorn. I'm actually grieved that men and women that God loves are, are so weighed down with such heavy burdens that they have to carry all of their lives. And I want you to see very clearly 
that what the Bible teaches, what Christianity teaches is radically different. See, salvation, the Bible teaches, is utterly of God's grace. We cannot work for or earn our salvation in any way. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you could ever do that would ever merit or ever earn God's grace and love and salvation. And the Apostle Paul himself writes probably the the clearest and most familiar expression of this. Maybe you know it, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, grace is getting what you don't deserve, not getting what you do. And salvation is always and only God's gift that he gives freely. He gives it out of the overflowing abundance of his love. But you see, sometimes, sometimes that truth, that reality leads some people to think that grace kind of means, you know, well, nothing I do matters. And if God is gracious, that means I can do anything. But grace is never permission to sin. Grace is the power to overcome sin. Grace actually empowers us to defeat sin in our lives. Grace actually trains us in righteousness. I heard someone say, very well put, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And so we do not work for grace, but grace gives us the power to work. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he tells us to work out our salvation. Here's the thing. Please hear me. Please focus in right now. If we truly understand grace, we will work harder out of the overflow of the gratitude that we have in our lives for the amazing grace that God has gifted to us. Do you see? Working out our salvation, it does mean that we work out. It means that we work hard. It it means that we we strive, that we take it seriously. In fact, Paul says we work out our salvation. How? Did you notice the next four words? With fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? What does fear and trembling mean? Well, Paul is telling us that our response to the salvation that God has worked in to us should be reverential awe and amazement. Paul is saying that this means that when I work out my salvation, it means I, I look at the sin and the darkness in, the, in my heart and I, my life and I see who I, I was and who I'd still be without God's grace. And I just say in wonder, God saved me. God rescued me. God is holy and pure and righteous and I'm sinful And I was doomed. But God in his love reached down in humility, in sacrificial love, and he gave his son Jesus to die in my place. God saved me. That's what he's done for me. God worked that in. I want to work that out. That's fear and trembling. It's a response to grace. See, fear and trembling just means we understand how amazing grace truly is. When we work out our salvation, it shows that we are actually grasping what God has worked into us. 
But as we do that, as we work out our salvation, as we work it out with fear and trembling, we must always remember that we work hard by grace. We work hard by grace. It is God's power that is working within us. We can't do this in our own strength. Paul expresses this so well in the book of Colossians. These are a couple of really great verses. You ought to memorize them sometime. He says this, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So he says that's what we do, but how do we do it? Verse 29, To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. It's his energy. It's his power. It's God who's at work in me. So I have to ask you, Southwinds, are you working out your salvation? Are are you doing it? with fear and with trembling. You know, I think part of the reason we, we struggle with this understanding what Paul is saying that a lot of times we have kind of a defective view of salvation and there are a lot of people, maybe even some of us sitting here right now who kind of think in the end being saved means you pray a prayer and God forgives your sin and then you get to go to heaven when you die. And that's kind of it. That's really all there is to it. But the Bible never says that. The Bible has a much deeper, much richer, more, much more profound picture of salvation. In fact, if you read through the New Testament and you notice the times that the word saved or salvation, those words are used, what you will find is the New Testament writers are talking about how we have been saved. They'll talk about it in the past tense. They'll, they'll talk about us being saved. We are being saved in the present tense. And they'll also talk about how one day we will be saved in the future tense. And there's some doctrinal terms for this. Uh, Justification is the first one. That's the past tense. God justified us. God made us right with him by forgiving us our sins through the sacrificial death of his son. And then sanctification refers to the present tense of salvation, that all through our lives, day after day, as we are following Christ, God in his power and grace and glory is making us more and more like Jesus, more and more holy. And then there's glorification, which is future tense, that one day God will take all of the sin out of our lives forever. Someone has well said, I think, that salvation is being saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification. It's being saved from the power of sin, that's sanctification. And it's being saved from the presence of sin one day. Praise God. And that's glorification. See, here's the thing, and I hope you're, I hope you're feeling it right now. Can you feel it? I hope you're, you're sensing it right now. God has, has done something in us that's mind-blowing, that's, that's glorious. He has saved us from eternal death. He's given us his eternal life. So how? How could we respond to his salvation with anything less than our all? Do you see? See, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to think that our salvation wouldn't involve any response on our part, wouldn't involve any work or effort. 
I mean, just think about it. You can't unleash the power of prayer without praying. You can't be guided by the truth of God's word without reading it. And I just explained some of your lives. You want to know why you struggle? I just told you right there. You, you, you can't be filled with the presence of God if you don't create space in your life, room for him through solitude and silence. I mean, if you just live and you live and you live with the constant noise of all of your devices ringing in your ears, you never hear anything but that. You can't be challenged by godly men and women if you aren't in relationship with godly men and women. You can't have a heart for the poor without actually serving the poor. You can't be filled with the Spirit if you're not keeping step with the Spirit. That's what Paul commands us to do in Galatians. You cannot demonstrate a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control if instead you're embracing a life of sexual immorality and hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage, of selfish ambition and envy. You see, the life that God, by his grace and power, has birthed in you is meant to be appropriated with and cooperated with and developed and deepened, and it takes work. See, Paul is just writing here about us living out the life that God has birthed in us. That's what it means to work out our salvation. So you see, salvation's not just a gift or an event, it's something that's alive and it's dynamic and it's meant to permeate every aspect of our lives and friends, that is God's agenda for you. That's his plan for your life. That's his will for your life. And he calls us to be deeply, actively involved in that process. And here's what I wanna say for some of you, this is not a game. This is not a game, but Sometimes, and this is why I say this, sometimes people who name the name of Christ treat it like it's a game. They treat it casually. Uh, Paul writes in the book of Romans about this problem. This is Romans 6, the first four verses. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live what? A new life. A new life. See, here's what was kind of floating around that Paul was addressing. And it still floats around a lot of churches there were some people who were thinking, you know, grace, God's, God's all about grace and God's all about forgiveness. And if my sin means that I need forgiveness, then I can go to God and I can get that forgiveness anytime through the grace that flows through the life of his son Christ. Then, then does grace mean that God's always going to forgive my sin no matter what? Does it really mean that when I sin, it's not a big deal? I mean... Don't I always hear that I can always ask for forgiveness no matter what and I'll be forgiven? So does that mean as long as I can ask for forgiveness, I can get forgiven and I, I can just keep on sinning? I can just sin away. In fact, some people think and say, 
The more you think about it, the more I sin, the more grace gets to work, the more God gets honored and glorified. That's good, right? So why not just go for it? And to that, Paul says, what are you thinking? Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? That's sort of like saying, okay, now I'm married. I've got that covered piece of papers in hand. I've got the ring on my finger. Uh, that means now I can sleep with whoever I want because I have the marriage thing covered. And, you know, as long as I come home to my wife at the end of the day and ask her forgiveness, she's going to forgive me um, and I can stay married to her. Like, so what I do doesn't matter. Can we all just together say, that's stupid? I mean, nobody thinks that's what marriage is about, right? So just as you get married and then you, you grow in the commitment and devotion and the deepening of that marriage, you also get saved. And then you grow in the commitment and devotion and deepening of your salvation. You work it out. And if you are choosing not to work it out, if you're refusing to work it out, then the question really has to become at some point in your life, do you know Jesus or not? So work. Work out. Work hard at the salvation that God has worked into you. Do it with fear and trembling, the fear and trembling it deserves. So here's the question. How do we work out what God has worked in? Well, Paul actually gives us three ways to do that in verses 14 through 18. And for those of you who are a little bit worried at this point in the message, um, I'm not going to spend as much time on these last verses as I did in the first two. (laughs) See, I'm your pastor. I've been here for 18 years. I know how you think. You know, you're like, oh, is this far on the outline? You got this not to worry. We'll be, home before, we'll be home before Tuesday for sure. No problem. So um, here's the first thing that Paul says. This is a first example, and this is not exhaustive examples, but the first example of working it out. We turn away from grumbling and arguing. Verses 14 and the first part of verse 15 says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Who who here, is there anyone here who, who suspects that their spiritual gift is complaining? Or you're like sitting next to someone and you know that's like their spiritual gift. I mean, we're pretty good at it, aren't we? Most of us are. I think it's fascinating that the first thing Paul thinks about when he starts giving examples of what it means to work out salvation is don't grumble, don't argue. It sounds kind of trivial, right? Like this is the small stuff. I mean, hey, everybody complains, right? It's no big deal. Or is it? Maybe it is a big deal. Maybe when you complain and you think it's nothing and it's just something you do every day, like a few times every day or many times every day, maybe it isn't a small thing. Maybe it's a huge thing in the eyes of God. See, it is a big deal. Paul brings it up for a reason. Here's why. Grumbling means I am not content for someone else to be in charge. It's always right there. It's right there at the root of complaining. You know, it's like if I was the king, I mean, I would make this so much better for me. But the other king who seems to be in charge and 
I don't know, maybe he's not in charge. Because like sometimes, I mean, if he was in charge, I think he would make better decisions. I, I think that he would do things better for me. Because that's why I'm complaining. And, and, and another thing, maybe God's not exactly clear on what I am entitled to. I, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm entitled to better than this. I can tell, you know, I, I, if I can think of a better situation, surely the creator of the universe can come up with a better plan than this. And, and so secondly, grumbling also means that I think I deserve more than God has given me. Do you see what's going on here? See, grumbling strikes at the very heart of our relationship with God. It means we're not accepting his sovereign providence in our, our lives. It means we think we know better than God how things should be run in our lives. And it's rebellion at its heart. It's defiance. We, we need to stop. So you say, how? Well, it's actually very simple to understand pretty hard to do, but put it this way. We kill complaining with gratitude, or we kill grumbling with gratitude, and we do this by going back to the gospel. We're going back to the salvation that God is so mercifully and graciously giving to us. We, we, we discipline ourselves to be thankful, and it really is a discipline. It's easy to grumble, right? Right? I mean, it's super easy to grumble. How many times have you started grumbling before you even realize what you're doing? And sometimes you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. And you try to reel it back. It just happens just like that. It's a lot harder to be thankful. And so we, we have to discipline ourselves to be thankful. We do that by reminding ourselves that every day, that, that every part of our lives is a gift, that our life is actually a gift, that my mind is a gift, that everything I have is a gift, and therefore I should give thanks. Now, arguing is so often about our pride. And, and people who argue all the time are people who can't let something go. Uh, kind of person, I mean, I know you don't do this, but you know someone who does, right? They just, they can't let anything go. And they, they keep a, a disagreement alive because they have to prove, they have to show, they have to make you believe and know and bow the knee. They're right. And some of them will pick, 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 pick until you say, I give up. You're right. Or they'll beat you kind of into submission. That's what arguing is about. And do you see that's pride? That that's pride? See, to deal with arguing, we need to be willing to admit we're wrong. In fact, you know, I, I, I do this all to help you out, okay? So I'm going to help all of us out right now. And some of you have a real hard time with this, I know. But trust me, you can do it. I want you to say, and we'll do it with everyone so you'll have support in this. I want you to say, I'm wrong. I want you to say it again. I'm wrong. You probably should say it more than that because you need the practice. But we don't like to say it, right? We, we don't want to admit it. And we just need to be willing to admit we're wrong way more often than we think. We also need to be willing to be right sometimes and not have others recognize that we're right. And that's where some of you are. You won't stop. You won't shut up. You have to prove. 
We, we need to care more about peace and healthy relationships and the mission of the church of God than we care about being right. And some of us don't care, and some of us have to be right, and that's why way too often we don't look like the children of God that Paul's referring to in these verses. We don't stand out in a warped and crooked generation. We look like everybody else who's always complaining, always arguing about everything in our culture. We're not blameless and pure. Here's a second way to work out our salvation. We shine God's light by holding firmly to God's word. Second part of verse 15, end of verse 16, Paul says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So what we see here is God is calling us to shine like stars. And what he's saying is that we should stand out in a dark world. How do we do that? Well, he says here, we do it by holding firmly to the word of life. And that word of life is the word of God. Now, there's two things going on here that I want to point out. The first is is perseverance. You're not going to do this easily and quickly. Hold firmly is a picture of perseverance, a picture of endurance. And he's saying, he's saying, we got to persevere even when we're weary. And how many of us need to hear this right now? Are, Are you weary? Are you tired? Some of you are saying, well, I'm sick and tired. You should be careful there. You're getting close to complaining. But we're weary, we're, we're, we're tired, especially right now. Maybe you're thinking of giving in and giving up, letting go. Hear the word of the Lord today to you. Hold firm, persevere, endure. And, and don't forget this, do not, do not forget this. You can hold firm, you can hold on. Hear me, friend, you can hold on because you are being held. God is holding on to you right now. And whatever you're going through, however this past year is, has impacted you, whatever's going on in your life right now, this very moment, how it's affecting you, I'm telling you, God is holding on to you. So hold on to him. Hold firmly to him. And, and it's not just that you're holding firm, it's what you're holding firm to. That's the second thing. We are called to hold firmly to the word of life. We need God's word right now, more than ever We need to cling to the promises in his word, to stand on his truth. And I think especially in the culture in which we live, we need to hear this word. We refuse to compromise under pressure. Our culture is calling us constantly to compromise, to fold under the pressure, under the weight of all the opinions of all the people who are out there telling us that what we believe is old-fashioned and backward and hate-filled. Paul would tell you, no, it's the word of life. You compromise, you fold under that pressure. You buckle and give in, it's only leading you to death. It's not life-giving. It's not gonna contribute to human flourishing. But you do what God says. You live according to God's way. You follow God's word and you persevere in that and it leads to life. It leads to flourishing. It leads to good things. It leads to blessing. And you have to trust God that what he's telling you is right. 
That's why in verse 16, he tells us to stay with it. You know, he says, so that in the day of Christ, he's talking about the return of Christ. He says, so that I may be proud that I did not run in vain. So we need to hold fast. We need to stand firm. We need to shine like stars among this world that's so dark. Here's the last thing Paul says. We serve God sacrificially and joyfully, verses 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's what Paul is saying. When it gets to the end, if you hold on, he says, then I'll be able to be proud and I will know that I did not run or labor in vain, that my work among you was not useless. And he says, and because of that, then I'm gonna rejoice. He says, I'm gonna rejoice. Even if, Paul says, even if I lose my life by pouring it out like a drink offering to God, which is, he says, just like your sacrifice and service to God. He's using a picture here that would have been very familiar to them back in their day, both from the Old Testament, also from the, the pagan religions that were all around them. It was very common back then to make an offering by pouring out something like wine, or sometimes it was like perfume, or sometimes it was, it was even a pouring out of blood. And the picture Paul is painting here is, is, is this. With a drink offering, once you pour it out, it's gone, right? You can't put it back in. Once you pour it out, it's gone. Uh, this may cause you to remember a story in the Gospel of John chapter 12 where a, a woman comes and, and breaks open a bottle of perfume and the, the aroma permeates the whole house and she uses this, this perfume, which was very expensive, to anoint Jesus' feet. She uses her hair to do that. And, and Judas, you will remember, who was like the treasurer of the group, Judas says, you know, we could have sold that perfume and got a lot of money for it and we could have used it to help the poor. But then John, who's writing the gospel, kind of sticks his hand up and says, hey guys, just want you to know, Judas wasn't caring about the poor. Judas was stealing the money. That's what Judas was thinking about. But it does kind of raise the question, is the thing that's poured out wasted? And we have to acknowledge that anytime anything gets poured out, it might get wasted. So read what Paul is saying again. Come back to these verses again. Paul is telling us, he said this back in chapter one too, I might lose my life. But he's saying, I'm gonna rejoice even if I lose my life. Why? Because my life won't be wasted if I pour it out in sacrificial service to Jesus. And he's telling us, and maybe someone needs to hear this right now today, sacrificial service is never wasted. Never. Now we can tell Paul thinks that because he says, I will rejoice. He doesn't think he's wasting his life. And he doesn't think the Philippians are wasting their lives either because he says, I will rejoice. And then the next phrase, and I want all of you to share that joy. Well, what joy? Well, it's the joy that sacrifices, the joy that serves, the joy that suffers, maybe even to the point of death. And Paul is telling them and he's telling us that sacrificial service always leads, always, always leads to joy. He's saying, I want you to rejoice. And then I'm gonna rejoice 
that you're rejoicing over the sacrifices that you make. It's like Paul's taking everything and turning it on its head and we're looking at it from a whole different perspective. Why why is he rejoicing? Well, we're gonna get to that more later on in the book and I think we'll be able to add some breadth and and some, some depth to that. But I think he's rejoicing because he knows that whatever happens, whatever happens to him, whatever happens to the Philippians, whatever happens, Jesus will be exalted and Jesus will be honored and Jesus will be glorified. And for Paul... That's enough. That's enough. Working out our salvation will invariably mean sacrifice. And we're going to stop right here today. But I want to say this, and I want you to listen to this, and I want you to think about this. If you can look at your life and not see any sacrifice, you are not working out your salvation, which means you're disobeying the command of the word of the Lord. If you can look at your life and the only thing you, 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 you might call sacrifice is, is really honestly not that big of a deal, then there's a decent chance you're not working out your salvation See, you need to ask yourself the question about sacrifice. Am I sacrificing? Is my service sacrificial? You need to grapple with this. Is true sacrifice really part of what it means for you to follow Jesus? And it it is what it means, and it should be what we're doing. It should be how we're living. And so I want to encourage you today. Let's follow Jesus, whatever the cost. Let's be willing to sacrifice because that's where we find the joy. Jesus is worthy, friends. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is where you'll find the joy that you're looking for in your life. Now, I've been pushing you because Paul's pushing you about work. But I don't want us to forget that this work that we do, that we work is always by grace. And so I want to end by talking about grace. I want to remind you that God is so good to you. Amen? He has been so gracious to you. And it may be that someone is here today and you've never surrendered your your life to Jesus. If if that's the case, I want you to, to hear what I'm saying. I want you to be, I want to plead with you to come to Jesus to give your life to him, surrender your life to him, wherever you're at, whatever you're, you're doing right now, whatever is holding you back, will you come to Jesus? And as you come, you need to understand he loves you, he cares for you, he died for you, he rose from the grave so that you could have eternal life and he's gonna make you a part of his family. That's what he wants to do in you and for you. There's hope in Jesus There's joy in Jesus. There's power in Jesus. So look to Jesus. He is for you. And he is at work in all of our lives. So let's work out our salvation together, Southwinds. And let's do it with fear and trembling. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? God, we thank you today that your word acknowledges the the work and the the toil, the 
Lord, the labor and the struggling that we experience in this life. And yet at the same time, your word points us to the grace and the mercy and the power of your spirit that is working within us, Lord, to keep us going. And God, we pray that we would be a people shaped by your mercy, shaped by your grace. And we pray, Lord, that because of that, we would be willing to put others before ourselves. We would be willing, Lord, to work hard, even to sacrifice for other people's goods, Lord, and for your glory. Lord, as your people, we we confess that we need you. And we ask you, would you invade our hearts? Would you bring change to our lives? Would you use us, Lord, for the work that you are doing all around us, Lord, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, Lord, in this nation and in this world? Lord, we wanna be part of your mission. And we wanna give you glory in all that we do. And so, Lord, today, as we pray to you, we ask you for the strength, and then we thank you for the strength that you will give to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus and all God's people together said, amen, amen. I wanna thank you for coming today. It's been so good to worship with you. I'm going to look forward to worshiping with you next Sunday. Have a blessed week in the Lord.